stroke Canada have a canvas Canada 48 strokes a minute 48 strokes a minute this is what they want to do Canadians now just start to eat out each and every stroke a puddle of water leaves the finish so huge and immense the amount of power that they are putting down just to be back as Canada really punched through the middle part of this stroke. They are supremely confident. They have a length. This is the ultimate event in sprint racing and at the thousand metre mark, Canada lead by a length. It's all going according to plan for Canada. And they have only 10 strokes remaining in this final. They're winding it up. They're winding it up. They're holding off the United States, moving on Canada, but Canada are going to come forward. And the Canadians will hold off the whole world as they come up to the line. And Canada are the Olympic champions at Great Britain get the silver medal. And the United States of America gets bronze. And Canada blew the field away in that first 1,000 meters. After competing on the international rowing circuit for a number of years and racing at the Rio Olympics, we realized that each athlete has an epic story and a journey behind every performance. And there's so much more to the Olympics than just that final race. We know the passion we have for sport is shared by thousands of others around the world. And we want to bring these stories to you. On the Row Show, we have a look behind the scenes to understand the journey each athlete has taken to get to the Olympics. We get into the years of work and dedication and the hardships an athlete has to endure to have a chance of standing on the greatest sporting stage in the world and a chance for glory. Welcome to the Row Show. We are your hosts, Lawrence Britton and Jay Green. This is a podcast we're going to be going into everything related to sport and performance. And we're also going to talk a bit about rowing. In South Africa. It brings people together, it breaks down barriers. Right, my passion winning to be the best. To be the best is something we strive for. Sacrifice, roles, high fit, passion, great passion, fiction, gold, ultimate gold, glory, relentless training, pain, pain. <laughs> What's up, guys? So at the end of last season, we finished off with the first part of the R. Jake Vessel interview. And we in, in, in this episode, we'll be bringing you the second part of, of that interview. And um, we're just going to run through a quick recap to uh, go over what we discussed in the first part of um, his episode. Yeah, so if this is your first uh, episode that you're listening to the show, maybe go back and look for Jake Vetzel Part 1 or any of the other episodes that we've done. And yeah. yeah or you could just do what you want as usual. <laughs> Uh, so last episode, we discussed uh, Jake Wetzel's beginnings in the sport, how he rode for uh, California Berkeley University. That's how he got into it. He was big in the cycling first and then switched over to rowing because he was big and powerful. And yeah, that sort of got him hooked. And then he went to the 2000 Olympics with the USA team in the men's quad. And then interesting, interestingly enough, he changed over um, to Canada um, we chatted a bit about his, uh, he had a, a bad mountaineering accident um, in, in Canada. Um, and then we got, we got into a bit about his 2004 Men's 4 campaign. And then we, we spent a, quite a bit of the episode just talking about his um, 2000 Men's 4 campaign. And towards the end, we, we chatted a bit about his decision at uh, doing the clean-shaven head haircut for his racing. If you've seen pictures of Jake, you'll definitely know what we're talking about. Yeah, very distinct, and the way he saw it was it was a way to intimidate and yeah. really put the pressure on other people, and he thinks more people should uh, should follow in his ways. Yeah, it was actually a really interesting just uh, discussion just about um, 
you know, um, he, the way he alluded to it is putting on a good suit if you're going to a business meeting, hence for rowing, you want to look sharp on the water. So that's part one. So if you want to hear any more about that, if any of that interested you and you forgot about it, go back and listen. Uh, this is part two. And in this episode, we're going to more detail about the 2004 Olympics where he had that epic battle with uh, his Canadian crew against the GB4 and I mean really finishing on the line really really close race so that was really cool to get into that with him and then in the um, we obviously spend a, a big big portion of the episode chatting about his 2008 Olympic campaign when he won gold in the Canadian 8 and it was actually really interesting because um, he speaks a lot about the psychology of racing in an 8 his, the psychology of his individual role in that 8 and also um, just chatting about carrying over the experience from that that men's four and how the dna of that four formed part of the the men's eight and just the way they approached the racing in beijing and also i mean that canadian men's eight is is one of the greatest eights of all time really power and i mean they just decimated that race if you go and watch the the damage that they do in that first thousand meters of uh of the beijing course Really, really impressive. Yeah. So really cool to to chat to we do a actually, legend of the sport. Yeah, we do actually chat to him a bit about what he thinks about the the German eight at the moment, seeing as they set the record. Um, I definitely think that these two eights are possibly up there as the fastest ever, and then out I I, I would throw in the uh, GB eight from Rio, maybe. Yeah, I guess there's some some big dogs out there. So we'd have to we maybe we'll have a new chat about that at some point. Yeah. Also, there's a whole lot more in our in our interview. Uh, we we're barely scratching the surface here and as well as our famous quick, quick fire, fire questions. questions so yeah please enjoy jake vessel part two and let us know what you think of our podcast and our episodes it can be nice it can be ugly uh lawrence and i can take a hit we promise don't send us anything horrible yeah <laughs> cool guys that's enough of us bearing on enjoy let's get into the show yeah, so uh, talking about the the brand and the the mental the mental games that you guys have played, I want to talk about the the all those Canadian rowing videos because I absolutely love them. I watched them like religiously when I was uh, under twenty three. Um, come ac- like is Spracklin as hardcore as it came across, and like that culture that you guys portrayed in the videos was that what was happening back there? Or was it uh, trying to add a bit of spice? There was no spice added to it. Like that culture was so extreme. It was amazing. It was it was it was really funny because it was like my favorite my favorite Spratly quote of all time was he said well someone asked he said uh, someone asked him about uh, whether whether or not we were overtraining and so he said well you know the st- the strong will survive and the weak they can't help us. <laughs> That is a great quote. I feel like Spracklin is just full of like amazing quotes. Oh, that's that's the best quote because because you know what? Like everything that we did, like I I was like laughing when I was listening to to the to Drew's interview. <coughs> He's saying, "Oh yeah, well we just we trained separately uh, when he was training rowing with Duncan. Yeah, we we had we had our lives. We were training separately. We would meet up and we'd have camps." Um, like, like uh, our our thing was like if nobody you, like you couldn't miss practices. Everybody had to be down there all the time, and and there was a there was no place to hide, 
And so because everything was everything was side by side, there it was such an uncomfortable environment because you went through highs and lows. Your highs didn't last that long, and sometimes the lows lasted a long time. But like what happened is through the course of that of of our training, I mean, it was it was really funny because because you knew if you came out the other side of that that you were going to go out and you were going to be competitive. And so everybody had a real confidence and belief that, like, we were going to get there. Everything was going to turn out fine. Yeah, and I think and, for, uh, for like, those big teams, the eight, and, and those teams that they, they, they have a lot of athletes in them, that uh, confidence and that belief in, in what you're doing back home is, is so crucial. Actually, for any team, it is so important to have that, that belief for, for uh, what you're doing back home. I mean, that's the, that's the thing is that, like, we ran, like, in 2003, 2004, like, we didn't have anybody extra. We had, like, one physiotherapist. We had a chiropractor. A sports psychologist was there kind of on the per, on the periphery. Like, one coach, a boat, uh, and a boat bay. And we had 16 guys. Nobody was disposable. If somebody was out, it, it messed everything up. Yeah. And so what, 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 end, what ended up happening is that, like, and the U.S. team, there were so many people that would be like, oh, well, you know, eeny, meeny, money mo. Like, well, take, if you get hurt, we'll just put somebody else in. And so there was this real kind of fear of disposability. Uh, and so so on the U.S. team, I kind of felt like, oh, your number could get called up at any point. So so there was like a lack of commitment to the training. It was more of a more of a. I need to be ready for when my numbers, I need to have something in reserve for when my number is called. But in Spracklin's training program, it's like you got rewarded for failing. You got rewarded for pushing to the point that you fell apart. He cared more about whether he saw you putting in the effort and trying to get in front than by always kind of being in the middle of the pack. Like you did not get rewarded for laying in the weeds. You got rewarded for having a go. And if you did that early in the week and you suffered later in the week he didn't care what what he cared about was seeing everybody overall in the team push push through um push through to the point where they were falling apart so by the end of the by the end of the week like 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 a big part of this training and then the psychology of this was dealing with discomfort of dealing with things when you don't want to do them dealing with it when you're tired dealing with when you've been behind or been behind for a while and rising up out of it. And in the end, what happened out of Spracklin's program is that, is that anybody who made it through was going to be kind of self-selected themselves, kind of started to become self-evident the way the chips should fall. So, so not a lot of time was spent on selection. Selection happened on the water through the course of the winter, and you just kind of knew. Yeah, and it just looks. I mean, uh, obviously, I'm only looking at it through the through the videos, but I mean, it just looks so competitive, so uh, and just getting pushed and pushed and pushed the whole time. But I think uh, and that uh, that culture of of you know look pushing it to tell you break is is quite a difficult one, I think, to achieve because most athletes they don't want to put themselves out there like that they don't want to the they don't want to break. They and and the other the other part about it is is it's emotionally it's emotionally really hard to 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 do that it's a real skill to be able to get through it like i when i say there's no place to hide if you look at something like the the way the gb team trains like the eight doesn't go against the four ever 
those guys have their eights groups and they, they get selected into a pool and then they train and then they go out and do it. And whereas we put everybody together and so people from the four would row with people from the eight and vice versa. And like there was no, there were no, you just rode with the best pair partner that you could, you could have and what created the best competition within the squad. And so in a way, I think it, it maybe lead to having a shorter career because it's so unpleasant. Um, or mentally mentally challenging to be in that to be in that environment but it's also like the purest form of like rowing sport that i could imagine like that was the best training environment yeah it must have been uh, really cool to to be training in that in that environment and like and as you say a lot of small boats and just uh, constantly going up against each other so uh, must have been uh, a really cool part to be in well i i just find like rowing training pretty boring like if you're just out by yourself all the time I, I mean, for me, like, I never got the joy out of, like, oh, I'm I'm really feeling the boat move in, in a steady-state row, and I'm just getting into the zen of it. My zen of it, first workouts were side-by-side, side, and the rhythm of doing the, uh, the rhythm of doing those, because they were so hard, and they were so, there was so much boat craft that was going in, going into to doing those well. And so that was my, that, that for me was the, what the real joy of the environment was. Yeah, and then like uh, there's a lot of discussion about the the rowing style that uh, Spracklin brings. It's like it's a bit unorthodox. It's got that that sort of huge catch and then uh, and that massive uh, finish. Uh, is that you, uh, you know you know what? I I think people get it all wrong when they when they talk about what Mike Spracklin's style is. Like Mike Spracklin's style is is get your blade in the water and hold it in for as long as possible, and. And so, if you look at if you look at the way we're the, the team was rowing at that time, we rode short rates, we rode low low rates a lot. So, one way to keep your boat in, your blade in longer, was to was to lean back more. And but when you look at when you look at us when we're at when we're at 38, 40 strokes a minute, the difference is is that we're not leaning back that far. But what we are doing is is that we are holding our blades in at the finish, and we're a lot stronger in that range of motion than yeah. anybody else, and thus we move the boat more. So you could say, oh well, they row they row at steady state unconventionally. Well, you know what? Like, I don't think that I don't think when I looked at most crews, I I looked at them and said, well, they're not finishing their strokes, they're not sending the boat. Yeah, exactly. As long as they're doing that, as long as they're doing that, we have a chance to be successful. And you know what? It's not having a hard hard catch as it's getting getting the pressure on the face of the blade immediately and and building from there yeah. so like like if you pick up the faster you pick up the faster you pick up the boat the faster the hull speed is going to rise and the longer the blade is pushing that the, the more acceleration it's gonna it's, it's going to have and so i i kind of i i think i realize there are a lot of different approaches to uh, to rowing and there are many different ways to, to skin a cat but i i I think the, the the way we were training and the environment that we were in, the, the way we rode suited our training style. Yeah, I mean, if you guys look at uh, how you rode the eights at, at Beijing, I mean, it is really, really classy. It's There's nothing uh, nothing too strange about watching that race and going like, oh, the, like how, isn't, you're not asking how you're making the boat go quick. You can clearly see that the, the technique there is, is right at the top of the game. What my belief about it is, is that there's just the athleticism and then there's, and then everything that goes into a training program and executing the training program, and then there's like the art, which is either you can either split it into psychology or te- technique. 
so you get some crews that come along that are just way technically superior they make it look easy but like i i also think that a lot of people don't focus on the psychology the sites of the psychology enough and the way through their training they never really get the they're never really maximizing what their potential is um physically they're they're like and being able to bring that on the being able to bring that on the day that's just a it's just a whole other skill set and yeah. it's something that takes a lot of time to develop it. And especially with rowing, because it's it's so physical, it's so mental. I mean, that race is is. I mean, I would definitely put it right up there on the the hardest things in the world to to do. So to be able to bring your your perfect mental game to the to the race is is probably where you can have almost the most uh, impact. I, I think that's the like having come from cycling, where you do you do a lot of racing i did a lot of i did a lot of bike races and then coming into something where it was short and intense and you don't race very much it really made me realize the importance of all the mental preparation that goes into these into a five minute uh, into a five minute race and into peaking for when you're doing three events a year yeah three or four events a year so talking about the mental game what is the what's the what was the hardest session that uh, that you guys ever did in the training? I, I wouldn't say that there's a hardest session. I think they're hard they're harder they're the hardest periods. Okay. Um, when you ask what the hardest session is, the, like the hardest season for me is the fall. I hate rowing in the fall. I hate rowing when it's dark. I hate being cold. I hate the like like when your mental energy your extra mental energy is used up and you still have to go out and pound miles. Or like get ready for some inconsequential trial. I found my will to suffer went down in the fall, and then it would come up through the through the spring. The hardest thing was to just was just to go and do all the do the constant grind through the through the fall and through January and like half of February, where it just felt like forever until until things would start start happening. So I know, I know that's a convoluted answer, but I I think it's more uh, has much more to do with the time of year, the time yeah. of year than it a, sounds like you you need to to row uh, down in South Africa because we so like our that off season is is our summer so it's not uh, it's quite pleasant then and then during our winter firstly it's not nearly as cold as you guys and then it's it's we a lot of we are often on training camp and uh, and racing up in. Uh, in Europe, so we actually basically skip our winter, even as mild as it is. Um, but that winter is pretty, pretty savage for you guys. Yeah, like it, it can be, I, I, and I think the uh, it just being it just being wet and raining, this feeling of being a zombie, like you're you're getting up, it's dark, going to the lake, um, and when you're coming home, it's getting dark, and uh, and you're. Uh, and a lot of the time during the day you're either like warming warming up because you're cold or you're like getting cold because you're you're uh, trying to get back to your car and it's and you're hungry and it's and you're and you're coming off the water and you're wet and like it just yeah it just that's the reality of west coast west coast rowing yeah and and then like the like amount of training and stuff that you guys are doing how are you measuring were you measuring it in like uh, hours per week or kilometers per week or like, how did you keep track of, of where that line was and how hard was the right amount to be training? Uh, the 
I have I don't really remember. <laughs> like we would get a we would get you just get told. Uh, Told we, would get the, we would get we would get our training program sent to us at the beginning of the week, and and that would be like I, I think one of the things that we we did less work runs or we did fewer work runs. So I think before we were doing like four work runs a lot of of two two to two and a half k or four to five, and I think no I think we were doing like a lot of five five work run workouts, and that got scaled back to four. Um, and so there were lists, there were just like subtle things. It wasn't, it wasn't like there were massive, like the foot massively came off the gas, but I think we just started to stretch or stretch in different ways because once you get to a certain, a certain amount, like you can't really add more. And so what Spracklin was always trying to do is just seeing like which different way you could stretch the bubble without it bursting. Yes. Yeah. All those little different, uh, yeah. Cause as you say, there's only like, there's a certain amount sort of where you where you just start breaking and and things don't go quite as well so it's about where where to find the right amount of uh, right gains and, and and that's and that's and, and it's okay if that's happening to like he would set up the program for the group you don't have individual programs you're getting a program that's mm. made for the group and so it's okay that people that some people are having a really hard time with it um it's as long as it's benefiting somebody at the top because end of what ends up happening is that you don't want the whole group going down but as as long as as long as part of the group is doing well with it the bottom of the group is going to find a way to get there yes so so i i think i think that that's something that he really under understood well it's like was not afraid of was not afraid of of i think he just understood how resilient people are and how they find a way yeah like that momentum of the group just always uh, always carrying everyone at the, especially bringing the people from the bottom on yeah and uh jake so we're moving on to your 2008 olympic campaign in beijing chat to us about your like your mental space going into beijing you must have been a little bit more confident in your abilities chat to us about what it was it like getting to the village um, practicing on the course and getting on the start line of the heat. What was your mental space? What was the vibe uh, like in the crew? Well, the vibe, the vibe was. Uh, it, it's not quite that simple because you had the the eight was world champion two two times before before uh, Athens, and then they went and came fifth and blew up in dramatic style. So there was there's a lot of baggage from there was a lot of baggage from that. So that was something that part of the group was really dealing with of like, are we going to screw it up again? There's like a, a real fear of it. And then there was, for me personally, between 2006 and 2007, my, I'd been having back problems and they finally got, um, came to a head. So like, ap- like after, after Athens, uh, I, I had real back problems between 2004 and 2005 and they decided not to operate on it. I went to Oxford 2005 to 2006, did that campaign, and fall of 2006, I got a, I got back surgery. Okay. So when so I came into the, the when I came into the, when I came into 2007, it was like 2003 again. Like I was like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. I don't know how my body is, and I, I wasn't the same. I don't think I was physically as strong because my back, my back just was a limiting factor. But what I did bring was a lot of experience. And going into the eight, what I what I realized is I I 
provided a foil for that eight to deal with all those questions about like are you going to choke and i also had my own my own baggage about like of having lost a close race so i was like okay you know what we're not losing a close race no matter what and i i just drilled into that group like we need to establish and work on and perfect like a finishing a finishing sequence of a race because we don't get that many opportunities but we have this training environment where we're always going up against each other and we need to use that opportunity to learn how to do this and then bring that into the eight and figure out how to make sure that nobody rows through us because if we're rowing from the front we need to be able to pick it we need we need to hold people off yeah and especially and so, in the in the eight where a lot of talk about how important the start is how important that first 500 is getting the boat up to speed and then and then sort of tapping it on at speed yeah and it's really hard to lift the boat at the end and so my big reflection like after i'd spent look spent enough time looking back at at uh athens as i just realized you know like the reason we lost was the re like those 800s of a second we were close but we weren't really that close like that that is all the experience of all the campaigns that i think especially pinson had been on of like knowing how to how to deal with people having to go at you because they've had plenty of people over a long period of time throw the kitchen sink at them and they like learned how to get it done and so i thought i'm going to learn how to get it done i'm going to learn how to i'm going to learn how to deal the deal with this and i'm going to i'm going to kind of that that was going to be what one of the things that it, within that boat that i brought to it so what happened in in the 2008 campaign is is that i became um, not kind of a the front man of the boat, but within the boat, I took a much stronger role in saying this is how I think we need to. This is the stuff I need to think we need to focus on, and making sure that everybody was on the same page. So, like, it, I think in a in a in a eight, the team dynamic of it is so important to make sure that everybody's on the same page and that nobody's getting left behind and that people feel valued and they they're listened to. And so, I I spend a lot of time talking to the coxswain, talking to him about the calls, like what's working, what's not, like how to how to kind of essentially focus on like the art of the the art of the racing of what's happening outside of the boat. So my role changed significantly. It's not I realized that it was not about me going the fastest individually, but it was about like also doing what I can through kind of bilateral all these little bilateral relationships within the boat and within the I was in the bow four of being there and then I also my pair partner was the stroke so I rode a lot with him and it was just like really important to get the psychology of all the people together and that feeling of unity and being on the same page that's the that was the real ingredient that for me personally was part was how I would kind of summarize what was going on in that campaign and when we went to the Olympics in 2008 there was a real feeling of a real feeling of confidence and I found that my role there also was I dealt with the media a lot. So I, when they when we got a, and they were kind of ruthless, they'd be like, "Oh, so uh, so uh, are you going to choke again?" And I would say, "Well, you know what? Like, like pretty proud of that race last the pretty proud of my race last time. I wouldn't wouldn't call that choking." And and uh, I just deflected so I deflected so much of it. I just would be like, "Okay, you know what? We're here to win a gold medal. That's what our that's what our goal is." any of those any of the questions and any of the stuff that talked about it it was like well it's a different crew it's not 
that's not what we're here to talk. We're not talking about the Athens crew. We're talking about the Beijing crew. And everything changed around not letting the conversation be a part of what happened, the past disappointments, and be about what's happening now. Like that was the big, that was the big thing that we we had going into into that piece. So that we kind of established our own identity, and this is what we were going to do. And so there was just this tremendous amount of confidence of like, yeah, we're here to we're here and we're we're ready. We've done the work. We've done all the preparations, and we're fully committed to to going out to win this race. And I'll tell you what, like I I I remember going out on the water and just feeling like a lion, looking looking around and being completely unintimidated by any of the other what I saw in any of the other crews, and. There was just there was just a, like a really deep seated conviction that we were gonna that we were gonna win that race. It was a really interesting thing because like they've changed the scheduling of the races now. But it, when you when you race your heat and you win your heat, you have a long gap now between between the final or the semi and the final. Yeah. And uh, in that time, the hardest training that we did of the year in a way was those four days because we're like, okay, well we're not backing off we could improve we could pick up a little bit on the start and kind of drawing back to, to my memories from athens was what was really funny about it is like like we had just kind of said we're going tape to tape we're going we're going from the beginning and we're going full commitment and so we did so much stuff of getting ready for that mo- getting ready for that moment where we're going to get out and get off and get in front yes and, it, uh, talking about okay. your your start i mean you guys just cooked out the blocks there and um, really, really Im- Im- impressive. And then coming through that middle of that race, I mean, you guys, that must have been, like you were saying, you're feeling like a lion. You're not intimidated by anyone else. And now you, you suddenly are linked up on, on everyone else. You've got clear water and you're moving. That must have been a, quite a surreal sensation at the, the 1K mark of the Olympic A final. I'll tell you what, like like 10 strokes into that race, or to like we would settle on our 12 strokes. We'd go boom, 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 boom. And then lengthen out massive power, and that would be how we would start to bring the rate down. It wasn't like a big shift down. It was just a shift of going, of increasing, making sure we got to full length, and of setting the setting the rhythm of being K while we're boom. Longest, hardest stroke of the race was stroke 12. And then it would the rate would kind of like gradually come down, but it would still, like, we're still at 38, 39. But we weren't sitting up at, like, the... 50, 50 strokes and when we went out when we went out everything was so rehearsed we were so well drilled that it was just like we, everybody knew and everybody in the boat had the full confidence that everybody else was doing the same thing at the same time and that there was there were going to be no surprises so when we got out three quarters of a length to a length at the thousand and all that work that we'd done um, to prepare for the finishing sequence and like I can still tell you exactly exactly like every single landmark and every single kind of peripheral thing that was going that that, that came through that like there were just all these things that were that were that were there so that we knew exactly where we were and exactly what we had to do at each point at each point along the way when we came and we had like a length up on Australia not Australia on the US and GB they had no chance of closing the gap on us they could come back a little bit, but there was no way they were, they were going to get in front of us. Yeah. And so that was the that was the thing that was so great about that race. It was like I spent all this time thinking about, oh, how are we going to win the close ones? I'm never going to be on the other side of a photo finish like that again if I can help it. It's just funny how how these kind of scripts on 
come unfold. At the end of the day, you guys came across in first place, and for you, that was your your first gold medal at the Olympics and your ultimate gold medal at the Olympics. I mean, it must have been an amazing feeling to to get that gold medal. I think especially special for you, considering that four years earlier you just missed that gold medal by um, 0.8 of a second. You know, I think I think what was so special to what was so special about it is just like I just had this incredible feeling of freedom. Um, I don't know. It, it, it's it, it, it's uh, when you've chased something that hard for so long and you finally get it right. It's just a it's a great um, and it's an indescribable feeling of of just kind of relief and relief and joy and just being like, okay, you know what? That's that that's that. We did it. Actually, Jake, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on the. Well, on your your the German at the moment, what do you think of their their performances so far this season and last season? Uh, I actually haven't been following it the, uh, that closely the, um, post uh, uh, post Rio. Um, the, the only reason why I was trying to allude to that is because I'm sure in the Drew Ginn interview uh, you heard us talk about the hypothetical situation of them who was who was such a dominant force in the pair racing against the Kiwi pair and also against uh, Pinsent, Pinsent and Redgrave in a pair in a hypothetical race. Whereas now when I look at you guys in the 8 and 2000 at Beijing, I mean, in my in my view, that is one of the greatest eights of all time, racing maybe against the German eight uh, that's currently racing that broke the world record last year and, and also against, I think, the GB8 in 2016 that was such a dominant force. I mean, it would be really cool to see such quality eights going against each other in a hypothetical situation. Yeah, you know what? I I uh, I think that's one of the things that's that's kind of sad about rowing is that it would be nice to get the best. Uh, there are so many boat classes, and the talent gets the talent pool isn't that deep, and it gets spread out. So it's more of an exception that you get these great boats going against each other instead of like one just climbing to the top and being dominant and scaring other people into different boat classes. Yeah, like that's a that's something that's it's great that there's a variety and boats but it also it also is something that detracts from the the joy of seeing like the uh mike tyson holyfield fights you know what i mean yeah Yeah. no exactly what you're talking about so so Uh, going on um to your so obviously we now we just chatted about winning an olympic gold medal and i'm sure it's uh it's it's right up there but is that your favorite race of your career is that uh, beijing final I mean, it's a funny it's a funny thing because I'm I'm probably more proud of the of the Athens medal, and it means more in in the in the sense that uh, I feel like that campaign was like the most ex- like that was as as an intense as an, an exciting of a campaign as you could possibly have. Um, I'm very proud of the result and of what I contributed to the to that to that eight happening. So. I, I also have like a lot of pride in that too. I mean, there I, I think you just can't really compare them. Yeah. Like, like it's not it's not one's better than the other. It's just they're different. They're different experiences, and and you take away different things from them. Like I have, um, I I don't know. Like your the first races in the four and like of the degree to which we had to back ourselves and stare down our fear and discomfort was amazing like i i really i really loved that campaign but i also loved in the eight being part of something that was so well drilled where it was just like it was just like a no mercy train of 
taking on the taking on the world and doing it with their chest out standing tall yeah like that that's a great that's a great experience that's a great experience too but it's like i i uh i would say this if 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 i had been on the other side of the 800s of a second and uh in uh, Athens, that would have been my favorite race, but who knows what would have happened after that? <laughs> yeah, you, maybe, you, maybe, maybe that, maybe the eight wouldn't have, maybe it wouldn't have been part of that eight. No, but for sure, I mean, like, uh, in in just going off what you said there, you, I feel like you have to go through those really tough results, those close margins to develop that that indomitable will and that the, that those qualities in an athlete that ultimately lead to success. Um, uh, such as when you guys won the gold medal in 2008. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Yeah. Anyway, Jake, we're going we're gonna to move into the uh, concluding part of our interview. And I'm sure after listening to Drew, you heard the quickfire questions where we ask every single guest on the show the same questions to see what their answers for. They're a little bit lighthearted, lots of fun. Um, and the first question is, if you could race any boat class at the Olympic Games, let's say you go into 2020 out the blue, you could race any boat class of your choosing. Which one would it be? Sweep and sculling. Men's four. Men's four Men's again. Four. That's the best boat on the world. That's the best boat class going. Yeah. And you could go up, uh, back for your revenge. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the men's four is like, it's the hardest boat to get right. It's fast and it's exciting. We've got a coach. Well, it has all it has all the elements of um, it has all the elements of the eight, but more personal responsibility for each person. And uh, it, like, like forget about sculling. It's all about sweep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so okay, so that uh, leads nicely onto our next question, which is uh, if you could choose any three people from uh, any time and anywhere in the world to to race your four with, uh, who would those three crewmates be? Uh, I would, I'd say, I'd say Barney Williams, Derek Porter, and, uh, you, you know what, I, I, uh, I really wouldn't mind it, I would, I really would like to have, uh, to race with Tompkins. Yeah. 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 I think that, I think that would be a, a that would have been a, that'd be a, that'd be a great mix, although, in a four, I don't know if you could have that many Chiefs. <laughs> Yeah, I think, someone, uh, I'm not sure who I'm not sure who would want to be the Indian in that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, you got uh, some some big dogs in there. They they all gonna want uh, their say. Yeah. But 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 I, I I say that I say that from the from the standpoint of like uh, the best part the best rowing partnership I ever had was with with uh, with Barney Williams. Um, I tried rowing the I tried rowing the double with Derek. And uh, I just was not a good enough of a sculler, but he was a fantastic sweep rower. And so, like, I would have—I just like to have the experience of going in a good campaign with him. And uh, you know what? Like, I think uh, Tompkins is a Tompkins seems like he's a pretty good guy. Would be uh, would would be fun to kind of uh, see how that would all all get thrown together. And everybody everybody in that group likes to uh, likes to party. So. Uh, <laughs> would be fun i think that would be some serious speed there in, in the with the four of you guys um so the the next question jake is that uh what is your uh, your favorite rowing race that you find yourself watching it doesn't have to be your own it can be another one what is your favorite r- rowing race that you find watching uh over and over again i i really love the 
the 92 men's eight final um, where the uh, where the where the Canadian team won and they won on a photo finish oh, okay. I, like that's a that was a such a phenom, phenomenal race and it was one that I drew a lot of inspiration from and like I, I, I think yeah just a really it's a really incredible race yeah that, that would have been from the the beginning of the Spracklin uh, era in Canadian rowing yeah yeah and i guess in many parts you could i mean it might be a bit of a push but in many parts you could say the dna of that success in 1992 ultimately led to your success in 2008 absolutely no for sure and uh yeah. that's uh, you've gone quite far back though that's a that's a race i'm gonna have to go and, uh, yeah, and watch. watch again i, I was yeah like, it's, that's a phenomenal race yeah i was two years old uh, when that race came down the track and i don't even know if jake was i wasn't born, born yet <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, okay, so this one is a little bit of, uh, got a bit of spice in it, but if you were in charge at World Rowing, what would you change? Let me cut, let's come back to that one. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, then the next one let's after, come back to that one. yeah, we'll, we'll give you some time. The next one is, uh, this is the book of secrets question. Many rowers are a little bit secretive about rowers. this. Current rowers are very secretive about this. What is your your two kilometer PB on the Ergo machine? Uh, I was like 551, something like that. It wasn't, a, wasn't insane. No, but that's... By, that's... Today's, stand, by, by today's standards, it was like pretty, pretty, pretty tame. And were you one of the, the quicker people in the crew? Uh, yeah, but we didn't focus on the Erg very much. Yeah. So it's hard to, it's hard to say. Yeah. Okay. I mean, at the end of the day, at the, yeah. the, the, the there's a I, common, I think a bunch of I, honestly I think a bunch of this erg stuff was bullshit because if you train on the erg a lot you're going to get good on the erg yeah. yeah and I always would laugh if you like our boats we had a lot of people that were around six minutes that couldn't do it but the reason why they couldn't do it is because they were so tired from all the stuff in the boat but we put we'd go in the pairs like nobody would touch if we if we put out our best pairs and went to the and, and went to the world cups and world champs like there's no way we would have we would have been we would have been right up at the top yeah and i think uh it's, it's something we chat a lot about as well because i mean we we do most of our training at a bit of altitude and again it's like the the erg is about comparing the the team together so it doesn't matter if if guys are a bit tired because they've all been doing the same training so uh, it's, we're exactly. not trying to compare we're trying to compare boat speed at world champs not uh, ergo times through the middle of the season yeah like the it's a it's a it's a tool it's not a it's not a uh, it's I it's not something that needs to be over over emphasized as far as I'm concerned yeah. especially now with sliders and the people doing all this other stuff yeah and I mean like like, uh, what, uh, what, difference, like what difference does it make yeah, and I mean, uh, Josh Dunkey-Smith had to basically, uh, well, he did, he stopped rowing to go for the world record on the Erg. So it's, uh, yeah. the, the, that sort of speed has now become impossible, really, for uh, a rower to, to go to. Yeah. If you had to choose a different sport to go to the Olympics in, what would it be and why? I, I, I think my, I always wanted to be a cyclist. And I would go... I would I would choose I would I would choose the road race, and probably for the, pro, like looking at it, looking at it now, I'd be unlikely to win, uh, but to be part of a 
to be part of a winning campaign on a on a, like if you were to treat if you were to treat the road race the way we treated a rowing the team on the eight, which is kind of what road cycling is at the top level. I I think that there's like there there is more and more of a role for people like people like me, and I I kind of regret sometimes that I didn't back myself as a cyclist because uh, because there is a role for bigger there is a role for bigger riders, and it's just it's just it's just different. Yeah, and then so uh, if you're if you're uh, yeah, I, I think I think as as events events and the sport becomes more and more specialized, you need. You need to have people the the specialist to the end, and that's a that's a that's a really ideally suited to people with a rowing mentality and background. Yeah, I think rowing. I mean, not only is it very similar uh, physically to to cycling, but I think uh, our sport brings a lot of uh, that mental game. Uh, I think can can be applied to a lot of other sports. Yeah. What do you think of uh, of Hamish Bond going into into the time trial? I think it's. I think it's pretty cool, like to see to see the level that he's got to. He's not far off the world tour, off the world tour level, which is which is pretty phenomenal. Like I, I think what's also interesting is Cameron Wirth, who in um, in Athens hurt his back, and and uh, so he was the Aussie rower, and who ended up rowing, getting picked up by Ivan Bassa's team. So he he went to Australian Institute of Sport in Varese with the cycling team did some did some races went one day sat at the front and like single-handedly closed down a massive gap and the Ivan Basso said okay I want that guy I want that guy on my team and or so legend says legend says that and so he went and rode on for liquid gas at the world tour level yeah so that's another that's another thing that I there is a real opportunity uh there is a real opportunity of crossover between those sports yeah, and I think it's the there is so, the, the only uh, summer Olympics uh, a person to win a medal in both uh, in two different sports is rowing and uh, and the time trial. It's a I think there was yeah. a it was a lady I can't remember her name at uh, at some point I'll have to put the, the her name in the description. Yeah, but uh, she did it. Yeah, I mean Hamish, Hamish is a Hamish, I I really respect Hamish's commitment to just saying hey this is what I want to do. I want to choose the time trial. I'm going to do it well, and um, I don't care about road racing. It's, I don't want to go on the track. Uh, like, I think that's the kind of that's the kind of thing where he, he could really upend the upend the cycling world and get it right. But yeah, um, yeah it's it's pretty cool. Flip, very cool. Um, well, that's uh, going to bring us uh, to the end of our, our interview. So we just want to say a huge thanks to you for giving us a, a massive chunk of, chunk of your time. Um, a lot of the stuff you don't think about, you, you, you don't think about, and it's hard to it's hard to articulate it. Also, if uh, if uh, our listeners want to want to uh, find out more about you, uh, where where can they find you? Where are you the most active on social media? Uh, most active on Instagram at J A Wetful. Okay, cool. I'm sure um, people will come and uh, have a look at what you're up to now. Because uh, I mean, you so you retired after Beijing. What are you? What have you been doing these uh, last few years mostly? Uh, I just finished doing a PhD in finance, and uh, so I graduated last year. And that that was a long that was a long road. Um, <laughs> so so that so I'm just kind of getting my career started right now, and then. Um, 
like for in terms of activities, now I'm running ultra marathons. Okay. So I've run I've run four four of those this year, and I I ran a I ran the Vancouver marathon, qualified for Boston, so I'll probably run Boston next year. More than anything, it just it just took a while to kind of after I retired to just get back into the mindset of wanting to train like like consistently be active again and yeah. uh, that's been really great yeah i'm sure well uh we don't have do, much uh, skiing in south africa but we do have uh, the comrades marathon which you should uh, come and do yeah if you're into the the, the ultra marathons cool yeah and uh good good luck at, good good luck at the worlds and uh i think it, it's really cool what you guys are doing of like bringing together the kind of icons in the sport thanks thanks a lot jake it's been it's been awesome chance to chat to you and um hope you have a, a great day okay take care cool you too. thanks uh thanks again for the for for this it's been fun cool so that's a wrap for our jake vetzel episode part one and part two i really hope you guys enjoyed it as much as we did it really was epic epic to chat to a legend of the eights yeah especially um especially just being part of that Canadian um, system uh, from 2004 to 2008, I think uh, for Lawrence and I, and I'm sure a lot of people out there involved in the rowing community, that um, those videos, that I'm sure that everyone's seen are absolutely amazing. And just that crew is what's is notorious for just being really strong and, and, and really um, dominant. So yeah, epic episode. And uh, we've got lots of new content coming. Actually, we've lined up a couple of interviews really excited to see um, what you guys think of our next couple of interviews coming out. But we won't give too much away. Uh, for now, go give us a rating, go send us an email, WhatsApp us, let us know what you think about this episode and keep your eyes and ears open for what's next. Tops, sweet. Cheers, guys. Jake's out. That's it for us. Ciao. Forty-eight strokes a minute. Forty-eight strokes a minute. This is what they want to do. Now the only tactic wow, that, uh, that Britain really can use. Oh, sorry. Sorry. What's wrong? You realized we were recording. You realized we were. Oh my god. I was just getting so g'd up, dude. Looking at the backswing, bruh.